1: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who knows how important immigration has been to Silicon Valley, unlike the current administration. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Jason DeParle, a reporter at the New York Times who writes often about immigration and poverty. His most recent book draws on three decades of reporting following the experience of how one woman born in the Philippines leaves everything behind to restart her life in Galveston, Texas. The book is called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. Jason, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. I want to talk about you a little bit first of how you got to this book because you've been, a, I, I've been a huge fan of your reporting in the New York Times for a long time, but why don't we talk about how you moved to this topic and why you wrote this book over many decades, which I, that's what's the most interesting part of it, that you're following the long story.
2: Yeah, three decades ago, I had a fellowship to live in Manila. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I went there with an interest not in migration, but in um, slum life and poverty in the developing world. Mm -hmm. I wanted to move into a shanty town and found a family that was willing to take me. And when I got there, I realized that the way they survived was through migration. Right. The father was a guest worker in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. The mother was home raising five kids on the money he sent back. Um, I stayed with the family for about eight months, and we became close and you lived friends. With them. You yeah, live, well, I did. Can I just let me back up? Just no, why did you, you want to do that? More about that huh?
1: Why did you do that? Why? Because I picked tech, for example. What What made you? I have been that?
2: writing about poverty in the United States for uh, the reason that I became, I became a journalist because I was interested in poverty. I was interested in poverty before I was interested in journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been a reporter for about four years, and I was. Um, Wondering whether I wanted to continue in journalism or do something that was more active, like become a doctor or a social worker or a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I took a sabbatical and went to work in the developing world. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to work for a group that was building slum housing. But it was run by an eccentric nun who had me locked up in the office uh, writing uh, grant proposals for her. I wasn't meeting mm-hmm. any people. So I went out and found another nun who lived in this slum area and said I wanted to find a family to move in with. I was mm-hmm. hoping to get a more intense— So you uh, wanted to see what, what you're talking— If you're going to
1: fix something, you need to understand what the problems are. Presumably. Exactly.
2: I wanted to move in and have a, have a up-close experience of what conditions in Town were like.
1: Mm-hmm. And so you did this. Tell us about that.
2: <laughs> well, the funny part about it is I went to see this nun and she tried to discourage me from doing it. Mm-hmm. As she said, um, uh, Americans need toilets. Most homes in the shantytown didn't have them. The family would think uh, they needed to cook me special food. I would be a burden on them. Um, and she went on and she had denounced American military bases in the Philippines, American corporations. And she waved her hand above her head and said, that's all up here. We need to build one-on-one relationships between the first world and the third world if you come back, I'll see what I could do. So I mm-hmm. thought she had changed her mind. Right. I came back two days later thinking she would have used this time in between to find a family that was willing to have me. Mm-hmm. Instead, she grabbed me and took me into the alleys and essentially auctioned me off on the spot to the first person <laughs> she saw. I yeah. you knew just enough Tagalog to know that, she was, that the woman was horrified. and No, sister, it's not pindi it's not possible, sister. Yeah. Second woman had the same reaction. The third woman was struck mute. That was Tita, the woman (laughs) I ended up moving in with. Mm -hmm. At this point, Sister Christine is done with this subject and stomps away and says, if you don't want him, pass him on to somebody else. And Mm -hmm. she left me there to... Work out the, the deals with T, uh, the, the details with T. Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh. So, so talk about that experience.
2: Well, you imagine um, a, a shaggy-headed, bushy-bearded young American arrives at your doorstep and says, "I want to just move in." Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there was no template, you know. There was no. Um, I didn't have a job. I wasn't there to do anything. Um, mm-hmm. I was there to observe. Um, so it was pretty awkward at, at first. Um, what, what broke the ice between me and Tita was she gave me a job, an assignment. Um, she was gluing newspapers into paper bags, mm-hmm. and I, I messed it up so badly she told me she threatened to mark the Made in USA. <laughs> 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 so uh, she had a good—one well, of the things I loved about Tita, she had a great sense of humor. Uh-huh, um, she uh-huh. didn't take herself too seriously. What or was she mean. doing
1: with the bags? She was making—
2: Sister Christine had this slum empowerment group mm-hmm. that, um, among the things they did, was distribute um, rice and eggs. And, uh, was, and Tita was one of the managers at the co-op store. Mm-hmm. She part of her job was she had to bring in two thousand eggs a week and shelter them in her kitchen under a fluorescent light to keep the rats from eating them.
1: Right. right um,
2: okay. Uh, so Tita was the the steward of the eggs. Uh, mm-hmm. I just thought it was a great metaphor for the fragility of. Philippine democracy mm-hmm. and for her own fragile who, hopes for her family. Who was running
1: for the Philippines? Was it Aquino? This was
2: right after um, uh, Marcos had been deposed, and so right, Aquino, so Aquino came in. in. Sister Christine, the nun, was a friend of Cory Aquino's and mm-hmm. on the commission writing the new Philippine constitution. She was mm-hmm. quite a prominent figure in mm-hmm. the Philippines, uh, right? But she had sworn off her wealth and moved into the shantytown.
1: right? And what did you know? It's very market meat of you to do this, but what was the <laughs> idea of that you would see what their life was like to do what? What was your goal?
2: I don't really know. I mean, it's a, um, I do don't know what I was looking for. Um, uh, uh, and I don't know what I expected to find, but what I found was an encounter with Grace. Mm-hmm. Tita lived under crushing conditions, but she hadn't been crushed. She mm-hmm. had sustained um, a strong faith and uh, an inquisitive curiosity— And a great warmth towards me, a stranger who had arrived at her doorstep. I I found her character and her resilience to be really inspiring. And I think it shaped my subsequent career as a reporter on American poverty, Mm -hmm. um, where the question is, why are people unable to take advantage of opportunity in a society where it seemingly abounds? Mm-hmm. And Tita's life had been one about how did people find opportunity in a place where it hadn't existed. And right. um, It encouraged me to sort of not just ask about the material conditions of people's lives, but to sort of seek out the, the inner narrative, the inner spirit. I mean, Tita had this rich prayer life, this rich sense of what her life's mission was. It, it made her less a poor person and more of a person.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I think is difficult for a lot of people. I mean, across any anywhere you find it, one of the—I uh, was walking in, in D.C. today, and there was a sign about not insulting homeless people. It was interesting. It was a picture of a homeless person saying, stop calling me names or something like that. It was fascinating. And I remember thinking, you know, the the way we treat homeless people, I hadn't thought of that, like thought of that concept because I don't do that. But of course, this is how— We look at homelessness. We'll get to homeless people here and and that idea. But you— Let me uh, tell you one really
2: um, uh, uh, interesting experience I had. One night um, for dinner with Tita and her group of uh, colleagues in this um, slum improvement group, and we were walking back, and we walked by the Sheridan Hotel, Mm -hmm. the window, the dining room, where you see these warm chandeliers bathing the white linen tables, and the women— Started laughing and teasing me that I could go in and have mm-hmm. dinner there, right. but I couldn't walk in with them. That they were whether whether I was paying or it wasn't the money. It was just they wouldn't be allowed. Allowed. And mm-hmm. what was special about the moment is that for a fleeting second, the whole idea of class division seemed sort of absurd. It was like mm-hmm. the joke was on them. The joke was on the Sheridan. The joke was on um, these artificial divisions that keep us apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was a, a really nice moment of feeling accepted by these these mm-hmm. people, and that's what was so special about Tita. I think in the end, is that we crossed a gender divide, a class divide, a nationality divide, and had something that I think is a real, true friendship that exists mm-hmm. to this day.
1: So you did this thirty and, years and, later. And, So you did this and wanted to do it just for the experience to understand. Right to under. To I work. didn't go
2: in I was going with a work were, product. I right. wasn't going to go in. wasn't going to taking write an notes. article to right. write a book. To um, Sister Christine wouldn't give me a job. She said, "Go in and if the people will give you a job if they have a job for you." So right. I I just became the guy. Right. And what did you sitting do? Sitting there, I took the kids to school. I took them to the zoo. I helped Tita glue paper bags. I um I was I, I just sort of became a member of the household and eventually started taking notes. I and mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of what made me realize. For better or worse, I'm a journalist. Like, Mm -hmm. somebody else might have gone in there and said, we need a clinic and started the clinic. You know, the pre-med person would have done that. But I found that in the end, what I was interested in was Tita's life story and taking it, writing it down. So right. that's what, it's the I right,
1: so talk about the development to this book, to, to get into it.
2: So we became friends, like mm-hmm. real friends, mm-hmm. you know, and we stayed in touch for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And over that time, Tita had five kids. All five kids grew up to become overseas workers just like their father. So this mm-hmm. migration situation had started as an emergency situation while the Philippine economy was in the dregs and while right. his life was in crisis because one of the kids had a— congenital heart defect and Emmett went abroad to make the money for, for you know, it started as an act of desperation, became a way of life right. for this family. Which is
1: quite common. There's, It's actually quite much more common. It's, it's actually very common in Silicon Valley where people do that. Um, the Wall Street Journal one year wrote a wonderful piece about a brother who stayed back in the village and one who went to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, ended up being a coder and everything else. And What it was meant to show was that the one who came to Silicon Valley wasn't necessarily the happy one or didn't have a happier life. it was it, mm. it, was, fa- it was just it, it was mm-hmm. just observational the entire thing It was just fascinating. But talk about this idea of migration of moving for jobs because it's so common. It happens in, you know, either whether it's going to Saudi Arabia or Silicon Valley or wherever people go.
2: The light bulb moment for me when I really understood the importance of migration globally was mm-hmm. when I discovered that remittances, the money that migrants mm-hmm. send back to their families, is three times the world's foreign aid budgets it is combined, yeah. I mean, I had been thinking at the New York Times about doing a beat on global poverty. And I Mm -hmm. kind of figured it would be a beat about right about foreign aid programs. Mm -hmm. But really, the migration beat is the poverty beat. I mean, migration was the world's biggest Mm -hmm. um, anti-poverty program. So I had known it played a profound role in the life of this family. But Mm -hmm. when I was realizing its global impact was when I saw that there their story was uh, the story of the world writ large.
1: Right, right, absolutely. We, with these companies, actually, we'll get into the tech of it later because there's all the kinds of companies trying to deal with moving money around the, mm-hmm. the globe, especially mm-hmm. at a cheap rate. Because a lot of a lot of is usury. You know, people are mm-hmm. taking advantage of people, and it's quite easy now to do this in a different way. But we'll get to that in a minute. So you stay with them, and then. So this is a book that you've been writing for 30 years then, Well,
2: yeah, it didn't start as a book. I mean, I right. started as a book in my mind. When I went back in 2006, so mm-hmm. 20 years after I had left.
1: And you had been covering—what did you do in the interim?
2: Uh, I covered American poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, wrote a book about the welfare system, mm-hmm. covered poverty for The New York Times for 20 years. Right. And stayed in touch, but didn't see them for 20 years. And I went back to write a piece for The New York Times magazine, and that's when I discovered— um, the sweep of migration globally and the importance mm-hmm. of remittances so out of that article in 2000 appeared in 2007 I decided to do the book mm-hmm. so it was maybe 12 years once I 12 years of consciously writing the book and 20 years right. before that of right. taking notes and keep, right. keeping notes and keeping letters And they were great letter writers uh-huh. um, so I have I, my mom recently died and I found mm-hmm. in her house letters that Tita mm-hmm. had written to my mother just oh, assuring wow. her that I was okay and uh-huh. Reaching out to her as a mother to mother, mother. yeah, right, absolutely.
1: All right. So, when you in that interim, when you were writing about poverty in America, because I think it's income inequality is just to me one of the more important issues right now that needs to be dealt with. Um, There's obviously enormous money being made by in tech. There's enormous money being made all over the place. Talk a little bit about the experience of covering poverty in this country because it's it's an issue I try to get tech people to focus on quite a bit, and it's quite hard. to focus them on it, but because I think it's integral to how we're going to—problems that are going to occur later.
2: Well, I was interested in poverty before I was interested in journalism. I right. spent the summer in India during my senior year of college, and when I came back, I wrote a story for the campus paper, and that's kind of what got me being a journalist. Mm-hmm. So, poverty was always the main reason why I wanted to be a journalist. And when the New York Times offered me a chance to cover poverty, it's like being asked yeah. to play uh, center fielder for the, yeah. for the Yankees, yeah. they— um, it was a great opportunity, they just let me go wherever I wanted and write whatever I wanted. My um, wrote uh, stories about native Alaskans and stories on Indian reservations, but the bulk of the beat back then, when I first started in the late 80s, early 90s, um, was around the, uh, what we now call the underclass. <laughs> William Julius Wilson, the Harvard sociologist, had written a groundbreaking book called The Truly Disadvantaged that had brought new attention to long-term um, intergenerational poverty. And then mm-hmm. Bill Clinton promised to end welfare as we know it. So I covered the welfare system and the welfare debate in the 1990s. And when the Congress passed the law in 1996 abolishing the old welfare system, I found a group of um, Milwaukee welfare families and followed them for seven years to write about the mm-hmm. result of, uh, of, of the Clinton um, uh, welfare bill. So um, I'd say most of my um, – the bulk of my coverage was around the welfare system.
1: So talk about today where we are. I I have thoughts about it because I think about the elite at the very top of society, the people in the bottom and the middle class that's getting sort of crushed in the middle. Talk about what, from your perspective what the landscape is now I think in America, shift, yeah,
2: I for, think there's been a big shift um, and you used the word earlier inequality. So mm-hmm. that, you know, 30 years ago that wouldn't have been the first word you would have talked about. Right. You would have talked about poverty. more of yeah poverty and particularly pockets of poverty. You know, right. The notion was basically that this was a prosperous society that was for most people the economy was working and mm-hmm. for most people they were right. able to work up and then there was this subgroup and so the question was why? Is it because of racial discrimination? Is it because of the legacy of um, slavery Is it because of the failures of the welfare system? You know, what is it about— Is it
1: opiates now, right? Um, <laughs> uh,
2: uh, uh, what is it about a subgroup that's mm-hmm. keeping them from sharing the broader prosperity? I think now there's a sense that really the economy is uh, not working for the majority of people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's working for the very most fortunate. Yeah. But um, so the poor, are th- I think, are seen more as part of a continuum of people who are not participating rather than a separate right. kind of exotic subgroup.
1: Right. Right, as more people get added into it. I want to get back into this. We're going to say, but in terms of when you say there are separate subgroup, meaning is a continuum of more people adding to it or a continuum of a different problem we're facing?
2: Yeah, when I first started um, writing uh, 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 about poverty in America, the, the notion was the economic system was working for most of us, but there was something about poor people that it wasn't working for. Now I think the, the generally accepted idea is that the economy isn't working for the general middle class mm-hmm. and the poor people are... are Um, The worst off, but lots of other people are one misfortune away from falling into their midst. So Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's seen as a separate population the way it used to.
1: And if you had to—I don't want you to place blame because it's such a complex topic, but what do you think the, the, Mm -hmm. the secular trends have been to create that? Or was it just that was the case ongoing?
2: I think it's a function of, gl- of rising inequality globally, and so mm-hmm. is migration. You know, the reason migration is on the rise is because inequality between rich countries, and, or a, a big reason it's on the rise, is because the inequality between rich countries and poor countries is growing. I mean, obviously, the US has always been much more prosperous but, than the Philippines, but the multiple, if you go back to 1960, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, say it was five—say incomes were five times what they were in the Philippines then, you know, now they're 30 times. It's that kind of magnitude. Right, right. That, that's grown, and we're seeing that in our own society.
1: Right, absolutely. And it's creating these tensions because people are coming here.
2: I mean, it's—I think it—I think the inequality starts in the marketplace, but the political system hasn't done anything to ameliorate it. And right. perhaps most likely has been—public policy has been exacerbating it.
1: hmm Because?
2: the tax system i mean just look at the who, who be- the, the biggest domestic achievement of the trump administration is the tax bill who's benefited from the tax bill i mean the bulk of the uh, it's a, a, a huge redistribution of wealth upwards
1: right absolutely we're here with jason DeParl. he's written a book which we're going to talk about in a minute he's going to read from it um called a good provider is one who leaves a family and migration in the 21st century we're going to take a quick break now we'll be back
0: after this Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: We're here with Jason Deparl. His new book is called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. Sketch out the, what the book is about, and then I want you to read a part from it.
2: It's about three generations of one extended family and how Mm -hmm. their journey embodies the broader rise of global migration. Mm -hmm. So in the first generation, a a man named Emmett goes abroad to Saudi Arabia. He can make 10 times his wage by Mm -hmm. cleaning pools in Saudi Arabia as opposed to Manila. In Manila he made $50 a month. In Saudi he made $500 a month. That Mm -hmm. meant he could get his daughter medicine and put a patch of the leaky roof on his shanty and eventually send his daughter Rosalie to nursing school, which is a big leap for a girl from the slums. She made it, um, I thought, when she was going to nurse school, the whole point was that she would then stay in the Philippines, but instead she went to Saudi Arabia and she went to um, uh, the Persian Gulf. At, at the time, I thought, poor Rosalie, she has to go abroad. From her perspective, it was, hey, lucky me, I get to go abroad because mm-hmm. the m- salaries were so much better over there. Um, And she set her sights on the U.S. She took her 20 years to get here. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes um, critics of immigration say it's gotten too easy to come. Mm -hmm. People don't really want to come anymore. She struggled for 20 years to make it and finally got her big break in 2012 after um, a few years after a hurricane had hit Galveston, Texas, and destroyed the local hospital. Um, It's like a Katrina event. A sixth Mm -hmm. of the island never came back. So Galveston's a struggling blue-collar community on the Texas Gulf Coast. Can't get enough American nurses to come back and rebuild the hospital. It was offering $5,000 bonuses. They wouldn't come. So it finally took a gamble and hired 20 foreign nurses to come in and open a new ward. Mm-hmm. Rosalie had her chance. She came in 2012 with her husband and their three young children. So the book is the three generations. Her father's experiences in the Persian Gulf, hers in the Persian Gulf in America, and then her young children going into the Texas public schools speaking As little English. Americans. They were well. They were five, seven, and nine when mm-hmm. they came. So oh, yeah. they became. Uh, uh, they weren't Americans when they arrived. They mm-hmm. were. Um, the the youngest one didn't speak a word of English. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, a lot of the book is about how rapidly and uh, uh, they became even and and, and even when it. Um, Made Rosalie uncomfortable. I mean, she at one point said, "We're only going to speak Tagalog uh, mm-hmm. in the house." This is the language, just Filipino, to for the, yeah, fil- fil- Filipino. you know, fil- Filipino, because it's so important. You remember to you, you know, your, your language, and that lasted like two minutes. I mean, the kids, American culture is coming in the radio, it's coming in the TV, it's coming in the car, it's coming in on their phones. They, um, within three years, they forgot how to speak Tagalog. They, go, they went back to see their grandparents. They couldn't speak Tagalog anymore.
1: Right. All right. To read from the book.
2: Oh. Well, um, the passage I, uh, I thought about reading is at the end. So Rosalie is in the U.S. for three years and mm-hmm. um, when she buys a house in the suburbs, which mm-hmm. you is know, the, the ultimate badge of belonging, the classic immigration story. Sure. So three generations it took to do that. The first generation struggled amid poverty, and the second generation awkwardly straddled two cultures, and the third generation made it. Going to make it, yeah. right, yeah. So she achieved in three generations— um, What used to, three years, what used to take three generations and a few weeks after she closed on the house, Donald Trump announced that he was running for president with a speech denouncing immigrants. Yes, indeed. Um, Rosalie said little about Trump. I cannot judge what's in his heart, but her life was an eloquent retort to the case he made. She didn't take from Galveston, she gave to it. She was a nurse, not a snake. In standard cost-benefit terms, Rosalie's experience was a triple win. Good for her, good for America, and good for the family in the Philippines. But cost-benefit analysis alone um, doesn't do the story justice. Rosalie's escape from the slums is a minor miracle. Migration was her vehicle of salvation. It delivered her from the living conditions of the 19th century. It respected her talent, rewarded her sweat, and enlarged her capacity for giving. It made her life deeper, fuller, and more filled with hope. It's great that migration helped her help others, but it's also great that it helped her help herself. That her quest ended in Texas is something for Americans to cheer. It's good for your country to be the place where people go to make dreams come true. When I asked Rosalie how the house compared with the hovel where we met, with the leaks, rat, heat, crowds, and stench, she couldn't find the words. I couldn't either. Oh my God, she told the kids. Big difference. Mommy didn't have it like this. Mommy grew up in a shanty. Christine looked up. What's a shanty, mommy?
1: <laughs> That's great. Um, so one of the things that you zero in on is this idea, this arguments around immigration now of telling the actual stories of what happens versus these sort of cartoonish, racist tropes that we that Trump engages in almost continually. Um, and is just today, for example, the, they're cutting back. Migration here by half. It's now what? What is it? Refugees. Refugees. That's down eighty-two
2: percent. Eighty-two percent. But yes. I think they
1: cut it again in yes, half. Yes. Right.
2: Um,
1: talk about where we are. Here, you have a success story of which there are dozens and dozens, more than dozens, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. That this is the way it is. If you're in, if you work in tech, you know that it's very clear that that the tech would not exist without immigration and migration here to this country. Most of the top executives at Most of the tech companies, you know, you just, Elon Musk, an immigrant, Sergey Brin, an immigrant, Satya Nadella, an immigrant, Sundar Pichai. These are all the top leaders. Uh, And and then if you go down one layer, it's the same thing. If you go down another layer, it's the same thing. Why do these tropes continue, even though there's success stories at, at a nurse, which is like everyone's different, versus, you know, I think all these people are innovative in some way, entrepreneurial. They come and they have these kind of things. What has happened to that narrative of, you come here and you make your way versus you come here and you and you are a burden on society.
2: I think every era of um, mass migration produces an unease. Um, mm-hmm. The arguments that you hear today are really not at, at all different from what you heard in 1910, 1915, 1920 in the Ellis mm-hmm. Island years before um, that led to putting great restrictions on immigration for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I took pains to read— and try to take seriously the anti-immigration or immigration critic literature. Samuel Mm -hmm. Huntington, um, there's a writer named Mark Ricorian who wrote a book called The uh, New Case Against Immigration, um, to not dismiss their concerns but try to understand them and line them up against Rosalie's life. And it was striking to me just how little the portrait they painted of immigration fixed her life. So Huntington— the great Harvard political scientist, the, uh, the eminent intellectual of mm-hmm. the anti-immigration movement, mm-hmm. talks about how immigration has gotten too easy. People can okay. do—they they don't have to—they used to have to get on sailboats and wreck right. their way across the Atlantic. And now right. they can Rosalie tried for 20 years to come to the U.S. Mm-hmm. She took the test, like the English test, five times. She took the, the nursing test three times. She waited in line for a visa for seven years. Then she waited for a job for—she for, put her every ounce of being into coming to the U.S. So mm-hmm. quite the opposite. Um, Mark Krikorian, um writes about how immigrants no longer imbibe American patriotism, and they don't learn civic heroes. Well, go to public school in Galveston, Texas. They pledge allegiance to the flag twice—to mm-hmm. the U.S. flag, to the Texas flag. Mm-hmm. Rosalie's daughter Laura got fascinated with Rosa Parks and came mm-hmm. home and you know retold the Rosa Parks story um, with a Filipino twist. That mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't fair for her to um, uh, be, uh, um, have to sit in the back of the bus because she paid the same amount of money. So she mm-hmm. had the, like, American equality ethos. And then she said, but when she got arrested, she didn't curse. Mm-hmm. And she was very impressed with that. It was like the Filipino little girl um, schooled on politeness was taken to that element of the civil mm-hmm. disobedience. Uh, I mean, quite, this is the third grade, quite um, uh, deeply taking it to heart. So the, right. the idea that... She knew Rosa Parks, she knew Harriet Tubman, she knew um, Jane Addams, she knew Abraham Lincoln, she knew George Washington. The, the idea that immigrants don't get exposed to American civic patriotic culture, again, it just right. didn't stack up to right. what I saw among a group of immigrants in Texas.
1: So what's does that persist now? I mean, I get, I get the idea that this has happened before. Most things were in that zone. This has happened before. We have been McCarthyism, we have been, you know, we, everything reoccurs from the Salem Witch Trials to today, essentially. Why now do you imagine this sort of pushback against migration has happened, when in in most cases, it does benefit the countries that—
2: I think you need to distinguish between politics and public opinion. Mm-hmm. So curiously, during the three decades after the 65 immigration law passed, mm-hmm. immig- public opinion was generally skeptical about immigration, even as the system was growing. Mm-hmm. So political forces were going one way, welcoming immigrants, and public opinion was kind of— mm. Now it's switched. The political backlash among a minority is loud and vociferous, but mm-hmm. public opinion is more in favor of immigration than it's been for 20 years. So um, what I think has really happened isn't that the American public has turned against immigration. It's that um, a dynamic inside the Republican Party has taken hold to promote an anti-immigrant message. I think that's largely because the immigrant vote is doing so much democratic. hmm And the internet sort of empowers um, the anti-establishment message. Um, That's another part of it. I think demography is another part of it, that um, immigrants are now settling in the South where they didn't didn't used to. um, So for a variety of reasons – more particular to the Republican Party, the end of the Cold War has played a role. You know, Reagan was actually Mm pro-refugee because he saw it through an anti-communist lens. When he accepted the um, nomination for president in 1980, he talked about how the U.S. was a city on the hill because it welcomed refugees. Mm -hmm. You know, the Republican icon, Ronald Reagan, said that. So we're in a very different place now. Um, I think the end of the Cold War um, has been part of that as well.
1: And what do you uh, attribute to how vociferous it's gotten? And maybe it's just because it's fascinating how quickly it's escalated in that in, in a political realm. Is it
2: because- I do think the internet has played a big role in that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, the internet um, weakens establishments and empowers marginal groups. So mm-hmm. there's there was. For 30, 40 years, there's been a marginalized, anti-immigrant cr- message, racialized yeah. message. Right. But it was quite marginal. Right. Um, and, They're off in some
1: state that, we don't visit or whatever. You it, know what I mean? Someone it, was it, saying that to me before so, they used to be able to be quiet in
2: a place. It, well, and the Republican Party was uh, forming around Reaganite orthodoxy that right, right. kept that message. You know, it's not that it wasn't there. It's just that it wasn't mainstream. And I mm-hmm. think— um, Establishment, opinion, gatekeepers have lost their power and Twitter has and Breitbart and other conservative uh, media have given voice to uh, what used to be a more marginalized thought. Mm-hmm.
1: And when, when when you think about the policy that's happening right now around migration, not just here but across the world, talk a little bit about that. What are the trends right now? Obviously, cutting back on refugees and immigration here, legal and illegal, What do you see right now as the most critical trend of all those?
2: If you look at the underlying forces that promote migration, you would forecast um, a future of continued high migration. Um, The West needs the workers, the workers in poor countries need jobs, cheap travel speeds the journey, the internet, cheap communications, instant communications spreads words that opportunities exist. Um, War and conflict has pushed the displaced populations to record highs, so all the structural conditions Mm -hmm. would portend, uh, as far as we can generally see, more migration. And as you note, um, governments are going the other way. So it raises the question, migration scholars actually debate it, you know, who's really in charge? Do governments really control migration or, um, do, or do they control it much, much less than they think? And I don't think we really know the answer to that yet.
1: Right, and this is a, this know, is look a global at Europe, phenomenon. In, you know, we'll talk about the, are,
2: Well, are the migrants in charge? or the um, when In 2015, when a million migrants went across the Mediterranean and into Germany, was it the governments of the most powerful governments in in the in the world in charge, or were the people on the boats? It's mm-hmm. a it's it's a showdown we haven't quite come to the, you know, we haven't resolved that yet, whether governments have the power to, to stem migration or to what extent they do.
1: Right. And especially here, I mean, the arguments over the wall or the not wall, they're, they're all, to me, not long-term solutions to a bigger problem um, around migration, where it's going. We're here talking to Jason Depaul. He's the reporter from the New York Times who often writes about immigration and poverty. His latest book is called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. We'll be back after this. We're here with Jason DeParle. He's a reporter at the New York Times whose book is called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. He followed the experience of one woman born in the Philippines today, but who's come from a much longer line of— the word migrants is such an unusual word, but who who engaged in migration to better their lives, essentially. It's a picture of the the real migration, I think. A lot of people that I've encountered in tech, I think a lot of people in different areas. When does that change, or is this going to be sort of— always a feeling of being pushed at, not just this country, but other countries, as people do migration. Because I don't see the concept of people moving all over the world, changing. In fact, I see it accelerating. From
2: Well, again, I think it's important to differentiate between this—there's two narratives going on Mm -hmm. in America. There's this kind of ugly public political backlash narrative, Mm -hmm. but at the level of lived experience, I think by and large— Immigration is proceeding pretty well. Rosalie moved to Houston. When I was growing up, Houston— was known for honky-tonks and rodeos. Right. It's now the most ethnically diverse city in the world, deep in red state America, and immigration is very popular in mm-hmm. Houston. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Hindu temples in the, in the suburbs. There's Viet Cajun cuisine. There's a level of diversity and intermarriage and economic cooperation. You, they need, um, they have the engineers in the oil industry. They have doctors and nurses in the famous Texas Medical Center. Um, you, You would look at Houston and say, wow, that's a, Success story. Compared, Go back to 1965 and, you know, if you'd imagine that if I told you 50 years ago there were going to be Hindu temples in the Houston suburbs, right. you would have expected, I think, a much greater level of ethnic conflict than you've mm-hmm. had. Not that you haven't had any, but just by and large because the expansion of the immigration uh, to the U.S. coincided, I think, with the r- r- civil rights movement. It helped incorporate immigrants much more successfully than it would have otherwise. And so you have this kind of like social acceptance and a political backlash.
1: So what is the impact of the political backlash going forward? Because you're going to see if there was a lot of immigration, now we have this. What's happening now, I, my fear is we don't let the whole— What has happened is bringing more people in is always better, from my perspective, in terms of—because you don't know where innovation—I'm focused, obviously, on innovation and how you bring in ideas and new, fresh things. And you can look uh, at—one of the concepts I think about a lot is how innovation thrives and what is part of it. One of them is tolerance. One of them is— uh, open borders, um, or not open borders, what's the right way to put it? A, a smart Im- immigration that works, that people feel good about it, more and more people, diversity and things like that. And th- the trends now are not that way. So what's the impact later from your perspective? Like, If you were telling this story. Well,
2: can, let me give you two scenarios. Okay. So, um, you know, the one I fear is that If the people in charge continue to tell immigrants long enough and loudly enough that they're not wanted, the immigrants will start to listen. Yes, and you'll have an ethnic uh, reaction, a sort Mm -hmm. of uh, uh, an ethnic, a level of ethnic alienation, like you see in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the downside. Um, The upside, uh, or uh, would be, at least from the standpoint of um, a more pro-immigrant point of view, this isn't the first. Backlash we had. We had one in the 1990s around Prop 187 in mm-hmm. California. Where, Explain that for people. Who don't yeah, so Pete Wilson, the Republican governor running for re-election uh, in a bad economy, seized on a ballot initiative called Prop 187 that would have denied um, uh, the children, undocumented children, the right to go to public school and, and all services. And it passed. Right, so in a big moment of anti-immigrant backlash that passed in California, and then what happened in the aftermath was um, immigrants naturalized and registered to vote in record numbers, and California went deep blue and permanently blue. Right, mm-hmm. that's the last time a Republican won on a statewide election in California. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, if the Republican Party, if the immigrant vote grows um, strong enough, I think the Republican Party will have to moderate its message.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you? Is that true? Does that happened or just they have to lose enough elections in midterm. Oh, it hasn't
2: happened yet. No. Right. And and you know people have been predicting it's going to happen and it hasn't happened yet. But I I, I said there's two scenarios. One right. is that um, the They don't come.
1: They don't come. I think one of the things that a lot of people in tech are worried about or anyone in any kind of forward thinking industry is that is that exact thing. That fewer people are coming, that fewer people are staying. Or feel safe coming. Um, I've, I've right.
2: talked. To- the, the U.S. in a world of in a global marketplace, the the fact that U.S. is a nation of immigrants should be a great advantage. Of course, right? of course. How much better for us to compete with the China, Chinese or the the whomever, right? Chinese, you know, right? Well, it used to be, you know, 20 years ago, whatever. We, we, the fear was that we were losing out to the Japan. Japan, right? Um, uh, Mark Recore once wrote, wrote um, uh, "Japan got robots, we got Mexicans." And, uh, yeah, that they were innovating. They were on the cusp of yeah. technological innovation, and we were stuck yeah. with low-skilled immigrants. Well, now um, nobody really wants the model their economy after Japan. Mm-hmm. So uh, America's inclusiveness in it, it could be a, a, an engine of dynamism in the global uh, economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I fear that to scrub the phrase nation of immigrants, both literally as the government has done from their – the immigration agency's mission statement, and mm-hmm. more metaphorically, from our consciousness, would be a big mistake. Right.
1: Yeah. The home. Who is the one that Homeland Security uh, uh, who rewrote the poem? Yeah.
2: Yeah. They. They. Uh, well, they. They took um, uh, the phrase "nation of immigrants" out of the mission right. statement of the right. U.S. Right. The Emma
1: Lazarus poem that he yeah. rewrote. I literally wanted to reach the TV and slap him. I was like, "What are you doing? That's a
2: great poem." Uh, that's a big thing among the anti-immigrant yeah. groups to try to say, that. Why? "Well, that the Statue of Liberty." It is historically accurate to say that the Statue of Liberty wasn't initially conceived of as a a welcome to immigrants. It was meant to to celebrate freedom. Right. Um, uh, Thanks, France. Yeah. Yeah. but it quickly became mm-hmm. a symbol of uh, because they
1: saw it on the way in. My grandfather because migrants came from, saw it coming. My grandfather in, came. But from also, Italy. Emma Lazarus yeah.
2: wrote her poem mm-hmm. um, about um, "Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses" as a fundraiser for the statue. Yeah. So even as it was being built, the right. notion of welcoming immigrants was built into it. Right, um, and I think it's such a powerful image that. Mm-hmm. Uh, immigration critics feel a need to de- defang it somehow, defang, yeah. or de
1: it yeah, or something right, like that. So, so it. We, let's get back to the book. So what you're, what you're writing about is really a success story. You start off, although oh, the in greatest
2: a weir- anti-poverty success story I've ever seen.
1: Right, uh, but where are all the characters now? Where is Tita still there?
2: Tita's still in the Philippines right. in a house w- uh, in, in a house that Rosalie built her with a private water tower mm-hmm. and three bedrooms and faux marble so, floors, okay. floors and um, living in much better Not physical the conditions. And
1: he, still living oh, oh, in— the- Oh, no, no,
2: no, no, no. They moved out of the slums and right. built, moved back to her family farm and built a nice house. I mean, that's the upside. The downside is all her children are abroad and she right. misses her grandkids. So uh-huh. it's a mixed— Bag from her point of view. She's growing old without her kids and her grandkids around Mm -hmm.
1: her. And her husband?
2: He died two months ago. Uh Um, A very sad scene. I went back with Rosalie to visit when he got sick and as she was. He had come back
1: from Saudi Arabia.
2: Yes, 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 yes. He was um, uh, he spent twenty years there, but came home and retired and had a stroke and Rosalie went back to see him and as she was leaving to go to the airport, he said, we may never see each other again. And Um, she reassured them that they would, and got in the car and we got start driving to the airport. I thought, uh oh, this is going to be a bereft moment. You know, I thought Rosa was going to choke up her on the way to the airport. And instead, she turned to me and she said, "You know what? I feel like I'm going home to Houston. Right. You know, that that U.S. had become her home.
1: Right. Right.
2: Um, so she is happily settled in the U.S. and the kids are now um, in high school and flourishing. And one of them is on the honor roll. Two of them are on, on the honor roll. Um, mm-hmm. They're American kids. They're not going anywhere.
1: So tell me what what you're trying to do here. What is the message you want to send with a book like this? Because it was incredibly uplifting. And it's, it's how I think of immigration. And I think a lot of people actually do, despite all the political noise. And what has to be done? To get us back to that, because a lot of people in where I'm from, they focus on HB1 visas and only qualified people, and my argument is you don't know who's going to be qualified.
2: Oh, thank you for saying that. Because if you looked around the slum when Rosalie was growing up, when I first (laughs) met her, when she was a 15-year-old girl, you wouldn't have picked her as being the one who was going to have the drive to get out. right. She wasn't the smartest. She wasn't the most outgoing. She just had some... Invisible tenacity that somehow carried her through nursing school in Saudi Arabia and eight years in Abu Dhabi, and just kept going. She just kept going. So, mm-hmm. you're exactly right. If you you can't quantify what what she had, mm-hmm. um, you don't know who's got that uh, right. Um, so-called merit.
1: Well, or else you don't even know where the idea comes from.
2: But, but, I, know, you, I always
1: you, use that example. It's like, there's a girl in Syria I know has the, has a technological mind for climate change. I don't know. And we're going to leave her there? Like, not bring her here and, you know, become the world's first trillionaire? Like, I, I, like, you can't imagine where people come from.
2: You asked why I wrote it. It wasn't really to deliver a, a statement about migration. You know, sometimes <laughs> you, a reporter— has a view of a subject yeah. migration, goes out and finds a migrant family, and yes, you know, sort of feels. It was just that I was initially drawn to just the character and mm-hmm. faith and resolve and resilience and general decency of this family. Um, I wanted to honor their journey out of poverty, and it happened to take the form of migration.
1: So, on a bigger scale, how do how does our country grapple with? poverty right now? How do you imagine? <laughs> Not very well. Not very well. But what do we have to do? What is critically important from if you were running the country or what would you think are the most important things? There's all kinds of ideas around UBI. There's ideas around... There's there's a zillion ideas that I hear about. But what, from your perspective covering this for so long, how does... And how do the really wealthy, besides... Stop taking the money, like which they love to do, because nothing poor people like is rich people like is more money. Um, but what has to happen in our country to rise up that group and do what we're what the narrative of the United States is, which is that well, anybody can do anything. Which well, is boy,
2: I, I wish I wish I had the full answer, but um, the, <laughs> is, you know, the partial answer is um, I hope that that poor people can become more politically um, organized and have more of a voice because. You know I think politi- even well-intentioned politicians in the end um, listen to their friends listen to listen to people who are giving them the money um, mm-hmm. yeah you know, and they're kind of invisible in the political process they mm-hmm. really are
1: well that happened I mean, even and- when the
2: Democrats were in power right they didn't do anything about the um carried interest uh, right uh, so right it, earned it again. yeah Um The Democrats are complicit in 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 in, in one hundred percent. But
1: but look at look at I remember what was uh, Cory Aquino was people power, right? The Mm -hmm. idea of it, and it sort of look what we have in the Philippines right now a very different
2: leadership. Um, And we have a government in the United States that is uh, adept at using cultural issues to divide to disguise poor people's economic interests. So I hope that politics could. Um, I don't know how you rebuild unions or rebuild union political power or find a, find a working class uh, political voice, but I hope mm-hmm. that can happen.
1: And in terms of what we have to do from our migration policies or migration policies globally, you had the difficulty of getting here for this family, but ultimately one of them broke through and has a successful life in the United States. What has to happen from a global point of view for migration? Because to me, migration is critical to being people being able to move around the world uh, in a in a global fashion is very well, important. Well, as you
2: as you were saying earlier, uh, w- I think th- the thing that I worry most about is is keep not the numbers. I can't tell you whether eight hundred thousand or nine hundred thousand or one point one million immigrants is the, is the right number. What I think is crucial, though, is making keeping the country a, a welcoming place that attracts the that attracts the Rosales, the girl mm-hmm. in Syria, that attracts the 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 people who want to be here and. Um, whether you would describe them as the best or the brightest or the most willing or the most tenacious. And I think we also have to, um, uh, certainly have to legalize the DACA kids. I mean, that's oh, just... Oh, my God,
1: that just... That, yeah, that's something won. actually people... in so Lorraine Powell Jobs, there's a bunch of people right. pushing for that. That, to me, is the lowest hanging fruit of all time.
2: You, you would think, but I've it's been... So been the first bill was 2001.
1: Yep. 2001. The problem now, right? 2001, you, yeah. What, what do you, from your perspective, it's just that it's caught in this political...
2: Yeah, it's uh, the the. I mean, the people who Republicans who were once for it now want something in exchange for it. So right, they're just, exactly. They're just hostages. They
1: What's going to happen to the DACA kids? These are kids, the Dreamers. These are these amazing kids. Beats for me. anyone who's met them, they're just an astonishing group of well, people that you would be you would be honored to and have. W-
2: and wildly popular with the American public, mm-hmm. but, yeah, um, uh, yeah it's in the courts. Trump um, eliminated the, the DACA protections, and so it's mm-hmm. up, to, up to the Supreme Court. From your perspective
1: Court. of covering this, what do you imagine is going to happen?
2: I don't know. I really don't know. Um, yeah, it, it, one one is um, reluctant to put um, your hopes in the hands of the Supreme Court at the moment.
1: <laughs> All right, so your last thing, what are you writing about next? What is your—you've done this 30 years, now it's done—
2: Yeah, I'm in that (laughs) weird, weird transition period of uh, back back to the world of of
1: poverty that you and migration you want to work on inequality, inequality, and
2: and child poverty. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's just uh, the the U.S. has the highest rates of child poverty in in the uh, rich world, and we it's a feature of American landscape so familiar we've stopped seeing it. Mm -hmm. And and we just passed a child. Tax—the uh, Trump administration passed a huge expansion of the child tax credit, and um, it's skewed towards upper-income kids. Mm-hmm. So it's—we're taking a problem and making it worse. And and, um,
1: and any of the ideas that the Democratic candidates have, like UBI, all kinds of things, how do you look at those?
2: Um Inequality has risen to the level where it's just replicating itself. So education, which used to be the place where you would— was supposed to be the place where you would fight class. Everybody got a fresh start. That's right. It was never really that case, but there was always some element where the— and uh, um, where where the class inheritance wouldn't matter so much. And now mm-hmm. it's become a system that just reinforces class advantages. 100%. So We've completely
1: left these people down on em- education. A, a, at the under
2: first. the name of meritocracy. Right. So, I mean, I mean, right. The other part of the problem is that the winners don't know that the game is stacked in their favor. That's another problem.
1: They know. <laughs> Jason, they know. <laughs> Trust me. I know them. They know. They don't care. That's a very different thing. So I, I always use the old... Hmm. Um, uh, Martin Luther King you're, quote. You're
2: right in part, but um, I don't think they fully realize because I think if you go to the right schools, and, and they work hard, and you sort of look back at your life and you think, I made it. I earned my way. I showed yeah. you. Know, I didn't. Oh, sure. My, I had a good SAT and went yeah. to the right school. Yeah.
1: yeah, the born on third base. and things Yeah, no, home that's a big, yeah.
2: that's just such a dynamic in American life in it a way is. that I don't think it was as prominent when I first came on the beat 30 years ago.
1: Interesting. That's an interesting question. I always use the quote, um, the Martin Luther King quote, which is one of my favorites is, I think it's Martin Luther King, I'm pretty sure it is, um, people that say pull yourself by, up by your own bootstraps forget that a lot of people don't have shoes, which mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always, like, it's interesting. And the second part is with it having to do with immigration. When I talk about stories like this, that there, there are so many uh, immigration stories that are so successful and so, uh, job creation, all kinds of things, and you get a pushback on immigration, I, I'm often like, what? When did an immigrant do anything to you that was negative? Like, I can't even, you know, it's, it's the same thing around homelessness or something like that. It's
2: a rare— Oh, I made a real point in the hospital of asking mm-hmm. Rosalie's patients what mm-hmm. they thought about when she wasn't in the room, what they right. thought about foreign nurses coming in, were they taking American jobs? And not one had any concerns about it. Mm-hmm. If you're sick and you're in the hospital, yes. you, care about, you don't care about somebody's ethnicity, you care about their care. Right. Well. And Rosalie provided great care.
1: In the, on that note, please read Jason DeParle's book. He's a New York Times reporter who writes about immigration and poverty. His book is called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. Uh, good luck to Rosalie and her family. I hope they continue to thrive. Thank you, Kara. Uh, anyway, thank you, Jason, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Jason, where can people find you and your lovely
2: book online? Jason DeParle.com.
1: And the book is available everywhere. Go to Amazon. Buy it from the world's richest man. Anyway, who should give away all his money. Anyway, if you like this episode, we really appreciate if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.